Open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We are studying the wonderful doctrine of holiness. You could call it sanctification. You could call it the doctrine of the Christian life. Or you could call it, as I've put on the internet, on the podcast, a Christian culture. We are attempting to study what is the doctrine of living like Jesus, or as was popular about 20 years ago, WWJD, what would Jesus do? We want to know that. We want to live like Jesus would live. We want to be godly people. There are many ways to picture that requirement, whether you call it sanctification or holiness or obedience or godliness or Christianity. We want to do that, following Jesus, obeying him. That's our goal. So in these lessons, we are focusing on it. There are five lessons that I've planned in the introduction. Last week, we began, or two weeks ago, we began with a, an outline of what does it mean to be holy. And mainly what we did was dealt with preliminary issues. So I had basically the introduction to a book, and now this evening we're going to get into the first real lesson on the goal of, Christian, of Christian sanctification. What is the goal? What are, what are we doing here? What are we striving for? What's the point? What, what target are we aiming at? That's what we're going to cover tonight. The next week, Lord willing, we'll deal with the enemies to sanctification. Why is it so hard? We'll talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those three enemies. Our flesh is the enemy inside us. The world is the culture around us. And the devil is the invisible spirit with his army of evil demons who are attempting to stop you as you pursue holiness. Uh, then we're going to have a few more lessons in an introductory fashion. Uh, how can we be sanctified? And then we're going to move into the real bulk of the study. Tonight's lesson is going to introduce us to the body of our study on sanctification. So I hope you'll listen closely because the lesson this evening is going to put an outline or a goal. Like I mentioned, there'll be about five lessons in the introduction. And then loosely, I've only loosely outlined it so far, uh, three points after, after the introduction. There will be the first point with about 10 lessons, the second point with about 11 or 12, the third point with anywhere from 8 to 13. So that's basically where we're going, or a four-part series. One would be introductory matters. The next would be what we're going to cover tonight in, in those three. So we're in Romans 13. Let's read verses 8 down through the end of the chapter as we begin our study. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no man anything, but one thing. You've got to owe this to everyone. Love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's briefly summarized in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that sounds like a pretty good summary of being holy. Obey the commandments and love people. 
Verse 10. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you want the whole law summarized in a word, just love. Verse 11. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. That teaches us that laziness is a spiritual danger. You might sleep so long that you go to hell. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day. Not in. Now there are three sets of two, two, two. The first is worldly parties. Not in rioting and drunkenness. Those are parties. Not in chambering and wantonness. Those are sexual temptations. Not in strife and envying. Those are interpersonal conflicts. So in this, in this pursuit that we have of putting off the works of darkness in verse 12, putting on the armor of light, we're going to have to guard against three areas. Parties, fornication, and interpersonal problems. Summary statement, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This metaphor of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is the metaphor that I would like to choose as the goal of sanctification. Did you hear the way I said that? It's the metaphor I would like to choose. Wait a minute. You don't get to choose. If you're going to preach the Bible, you don't make choices like that. You just open the Bible and say what it says. Ah, thank you. That's right. How can I choose this metaphor to be the goal? Why don't I find the passage of Scripture that tells me the goal? That's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. You're right, I'm asking. I'm not going to let you sneak that in on us. Why did you choose Put on the Lord Jesus Christ because there are so many metaphors in the Bible and they all mean the same thing. Can I give you some of them? Romans 8 verse 29. You were predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. That's one way to talk about the goal of sanctification. You could say it this way. Why are we talking about sanctification? Because I want you to look like Jesus. You look a little too much like a Tsonga guy and I want you to look like Jesus. You look a little, a little too much like them. I want you to look like Jesus. That's Romans 8, 29. But that's not the only one. In Ephesians 4, 13, he says it this way. I'm summarizing or paraphrasing. I just want you to grow up into the full stature of a man of God. Well, that's one way to talk about our goal. Now, I'd really like you to stop being such a boy and be a true man. Real manliness in Ephesians 4.13 is growing up. That's another way to picture the goal. Another way to picture the goal is found in Jesus' words. In in Matthew 5 verse 48, 
You must be perfect. Like your Father in Heaven is perfect. Another way to picture the goal is to behold the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Honestly, that's the only thing I want you to do in this study. All I want you to do is just look your eyes away at the glory of God. If I could do that, as Tulani prayed, if somehow in this study, by the power of the Spirit, your eyes could be opened to see the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18, you would be transformed into His likeness. So if, that, if you could just look your eyes away, what's the goal of this study? I'm trying to teach you to look. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's not the only one though. In Ephesians 4 verse 24, he says he wants you to put on a new man. Your old man's a mess. You need to have a new man. In 2 Peter 1 verse 4, he says the goal of sanctification is to escape from corruption that is in the world. Picture that. That's the word that's used of a desperate escape from a jail. And Peter says, hey, all of you, the goal of sanctification is that you could be in there and when the guards don't look, it's two in the morning, break the bars and get and run. And as they shoot after you and the bullets are coming hard and it's dark at night, run, run, get out, get out, escape. Wow, that's pretty exciting. That's what we're studying. Or we could say in 1 John 3, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him, that is the hope that Jesus will receive him when he comes back. 1 John 3, verse 2, when he appears, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. If you have in your mind a hope, as you just quoted, brother, you said John 14, verses 1 and 2, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If you really have a firm confidence That Jesus Christ will come back and he'll look at you and say, you're full of sin, but you're covered in my blood. If you've really got that full hope, 1 John 3, verse 3, everyone who hopes for that purifies himself. Just like he is pure. That's another way we could talk about it. Go take a bath. Clean yourself up. We could use this one from the book of Ruth. Live making good decisions in light of what other people need. We could use this one from the book of Joshua. You're going to need to destroy the enemy and occupy the land. Wow, that sounds a little bit too much like colonizing. It's in the Bible. And it's a picture of sanctification. What are you going to have to do over these next six months? I'm going to try to teach you to colonize your soul in a godly way. That's what we want to happen. That's from the book of Joshua. Or the book of Proverbs. We're going to try to teach you as a little boy to think like a man. That's the book of Proverbs telling us. You see, there are many metaphors throughout Scripture for how to live as a godly man. For what sanctification is or holiness is. So I'm picking this one because I think it will stay with us. Let's look at it. That was the introduction. Look in verse 14, Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's examine several aspects of this tonight. Maybe five or six as we have time. Number one, first of all, the word itself is fascinating. It means to get dressed. It's used of 
men when they are getting dressed. It's the same Greek word. When he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you could write it this way. Get dressed with Jesus. Wear Jesus. That shouldn't surprise you, should it? Because in 1 Peter 5, it describes a pastor's life in what way? 1 Peter 5, verse 5. They should clothe themselves with what? Humility. And you'll know a true pastor because he puts on humility every day. And the times that he's found without humility, he's as ashamed as he would be caught without a shirt. A godly pastor puts on humility every day, but a godly Christian puts on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a word for clothing. It's the same word used in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Cast off. Do you see cast off? That's the word for undress. And it's used many times for being undressed. In fact, it's used of, I think it's blind Bartimaeus. Was it Bartimaeus who in the book of Mark, when he hears that Jesus is coming, he calls out, Oh Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And David says, what do you want me to do? And it says, he threw off his cloak. Why do blind men throw off their cloaks? They can't find them again. He didn't seem to worry about that. He seemed to have the confidence. If I can just get to Jesus, I think I get my coat back. But he threw off his coat. It's the same word as in verse 12. He says, throw it off. You don't need that anymore. Throw off what? In verse 12. Tell me, what are you supposed to throw off? Those works. You have been formerly putting on every day. You've got earrings that are dark. You have a hat that is dark. You've got a scarf that is dark. You've got a shirt and an undershirt and a tie and a belt and sock. And what you're going to need to do is just take all of that off. And in verse 12, put on something else. What do you have to put on in verse 12? No, in verse 12. In verse 12, what is it? The armor. By the way, where is the armor of God in the Bible? Who can tell me? It's in the book of Ephesians and in Romans and in Colossians and in 2 Corinthians. Did you ever realize it was in all those places? The armor of God is in a number of places, but it's most fully discussed in the book of Ephesians. This is a common Pauline theme, but notice the word put on in verse 12. It's the same word as in verse 14. Put on, put on. You can circle them and draw a line. Same word. Undress with the works of darkness, throw them on the ground, then come over here in your dressing room, look through the closet, and you could choose my personal opinions, pass that one by. You could choose my father's traditions, you pass that one by. You can take my culture, pass that one by. But then in your wardrobe, you just threw off the works of darkness. They're laying there on the ground. You're going to take them out and throw them in the rubbish bin just now. But you've got to get dressed before you can go outside and get rid of those, right? And you're looking through and then you see it. It's the one you need to wear. What is it? The Lord Jesus Christ or the armor of light. It's the same, same concept. In verse 14, you're going to want to wear the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've got to understand one other thing about this putting on. Can anyone think of another time in the Christian life when putting on is a metaphor? It's a really, really important time, and we sing about it. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness my beauty are my glorious 
dress. Yes. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You're going to need to take those off. But in Revelation 19, the fine clothes is the righteousness that we put on. Matthew chapter 22. Do you remember that story? He goes out into the highways. Come in. Come in to the wedding feast of the king. Come. And then one guy comes in. But he doesn't wear a wedding garment. Have you ever noticed that in Matthew chapter 22? And then the, the uh, governor walks up to him and says, or the leader of the feast walks up and says, now why don't you, why aren't you dressed right? Because you can't come in here if you're not dressed right. And he says, oh, you know, they invited me. I just thought I'd come. Well, I understand you coming here, but you're not allowed in here unless you have the right clothing on. Well, but it's okay. And then many commentators say that they actually provided clothing for their guests. There was a certain robe they would give guests at the entry. I'm not sure if that's true, if they're just trying to make it fit with Christian theology, but a number of commentators say that. The point is, the man didn't have the clothing and he was cast out into outer darkness, Matthew chapter 22. The clothing there is a picture of the righteousness of Christ. Philippians 3, verse 9 and 10. I want to be found in Christ. Listen, please listen to this very closely. If last sermon on sanctification was helpful for you, when I attempted to make the distinction between justification and sanctification, you need this next two minutes. Follow me carefully on this. Justification is pictured in Philippians 3 verses 9 and 10. I want to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's called justification. It's pictured in Matthew 22 and Revelation 19 and Philippians 3, 9 and 10. It's pictured there as putting on a robe. That robe was woven by Jesus Christ. Every amount of his goodness and perfectness and perfection was given by Jesus Christ. And it's in our confession of faith on page or number 57 on the back, statement of faith from the Baptist Confession. Listen to this one. Believers are justified by God imputing. Listen, two things, two things. You become justified when you have two things. This is justification, not sanctification. Believers are justified by God imputing Christ's active obedience to the whole law and his passive obedience in death. Section 11.1 of the Confession. That means this. What is justification? It is when you say, oh, I'm a sinner. I don't have the right clothes. Give me your clothes, Jesus. And he puts his clothes on you so that you now look not like you, but you look like him in the eyes of the father. That's justification. And that robe is made of his obedience to the law. And what's the second thing it's made of? I just read it. His passive obedience and death. The robe that I'm wearing right now by justification is made of his obedience to the law and also the cross. His passive obedience and death. So it's the cross as well as his obedience to all the laws. Those two things come together and they make a perfect garment. I'm wearing that now by faith. You put that on by faith. That's called conversion. 
That's called justification. At that moment, it's not a process. It's an event. It's one moment. It's a time. It's a day. It's a birth time. When you put on that garment, you pass from death to life. When you put on that garment, your name is written in the book of life. That's a different metaphor from what's happening here. And I just want to be clear because I don't know every one of you in the state of your soul. But I would have you all put on that robe. What are you waiting for? Well, I just need some more time to understand. You need time to put on a nice robe? Well, I just need a little more time. What, in your filthy rags? Throw them off and put on Christ right now. Put on his righteousness. You will pass from death to life. Your name will be recorded in heaven and you will be saved. That's different from this passage. It's a separate action. We covered that last time, so I'll move on now. In this passage, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an ongoing activity. How do I know? We'll look at verse 13. What's the verb in verse 13? Everyone look at verse 13. Romans 13, verse 13. What's the verb in verse 13 that shows us this is an ongoing activity and not a once for all action? Do you see that word walk? I was so glad as I called for it. Some people started walking with their fingers. Ah, yeah, you got it. Walking is an ongoing event. First John chapter one, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. That's what this is talking about here. He's telling you, put on Jesus Christ. It's a metaphor. The goal of what we're studying is that you would put on Christ. Maybe you can think of it this way. We're building a puzzle at home. Got the table out and the puzzle pieces are there. When do you start building a puzzle? You can start building the puzzle before you even put the pieces together. You dump the pieces out, and there you started. But it's not together, it's just a mess on the table. And the first, couple, the first couple times I go to work on this puzzle, I'm just turning pieces over. I do it for about three minutes, walk off. Another child comes up, turns some pieces over. We still haven't even put them together. And then we're putting it together. And then the next time I'll come by, I put all the edge pieces by themselves. It'll take three or four times just for me to pass by the puzzle, or maybe over four days or a week, before we even put the first piece together. That's something like the metaphor here. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This verb is a process. You're going to be putting on the wonder and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ until you die. And then into all eternity, you're going to be putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first point. I'd like you to notice the second point. The verb put on the Lord Jesus Christ is a metaphor. Friends, let me give you some comments right now about imagination. The imagination is the part of man that most gloriously distinguishes him from animals. Dogs cannot imagine, except for the most basic, do I smell food? But even then, they're driven by their noses. 
If they hear the door open, they might have remembered that yesterday when the door opened, the master came out. Dogs don't imagine. Monkeys don't imagine, but you do. You imagine to yourself, what might it look like if I were married to her? Ooh, I think I'll go ask. You imagine, what might it look like if I were married to her? Ooh, I'm so glad I'm single. You imagine. You imagine, what might it look like if I had a little boy or a girl? What might it look like if I lived there or worked there? What might it look like if I tried alcohol? What might it look like if I just took the first puff of the cigarette? What might it look like if I went on evangelism? What might happen if I really followed Jesus? We imagine all the time. Our brother made us imagine now. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. You can't see those with your eyes. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's imagination. Much of the Bible is imagination. Take the most basic truths. Who is God? Who does he reveal himself to be? It starts with an F. Father. You're going to have to imagine that. You're going to have to look to him and say, well, he's a dad. He's a dad. He's a, maybe, no, it's not like that. Well, maybe it is. Something like that, but it's something different. Come to the class Tuesday night. (laughs) And what is the name of the second person? What is Jesus? Before he was Jesus, what was he? Paul, how are you going to comprehend that without an imagination? You're going to have to imagine to understand almost any page in the Bible. Try the Old Testament. Try understanding in the beginning God created the heaven and earth and don't imagine anything. You can't do it. You require imagination. We require imagination to understand and obey anything in the Bible. Enter at the narrow gate. You have to think about a gate. You have to think about what entering looks like. Because many people are trying to get in and they, won't, they will fail. Oh, you imagine a big group of people swarming, getting near the gate and then turning away. You have to imagine. Metaphors are the stock and trade of biblical communication. It's the tool by which God communicates consistently. I've said this before in other sermons, so I don't want to repeat, but I do want to get it in our minds and in our hearts. What is God's action with man? He's saving us. That means deliverance. What is he doing? He's redeeming us. That means taking us out of a slave market. What is he doing with us? He's washing us. You know what washing is, don't you? You're using your imagination right now. What is he doing? He's adopting us. That's imaginative. What is he doing? He's taking us to heaven. What is he doing? He's making you a son. What is he doing? He's causing you to be born again. Every one of these are imagination, imaginative pictures. The mind works consistently in the Bible through the imagination. As Romans chapter 4 says, he calls those things which are not as though they were. God says, I will that these things be. They're not yet, but they will be. In that sense, he imagines, though his imagination is not like ours, come to the Tuesday night class. But imagination is vitally important. Here's the problem. We have broken our imagination. And we did not break it like a man, usually we did not break it, like a man breaks a bucky when he has a head-on collision. That's not the way we've broken our imagination. We've broken our imagination the way a man goes to Sandberg 
to pick up some sand and he's got his bucky. He says, oh, just pour it in the back. And in the back of the bucky, they pour six tons. What's going to happen if you pour six tons on the back of a bucky? It's going to be buried. That's basically the problem that we've done because we have an imagination and we're supposed to be imagining certain things, but ever since maybe the telegraph, ever since we can send ideas and words very quickly and especially the radio and then, oh, it's a flood with the TV and it's not a flood, it is a, it is a, a tsunami with smartphones and the internet. We are overwhelmed with so many thoughts that force your imagination into a certain track and it hasn't helped your imagination. Your imagination is now bound in a certain track unless you somehow fight and labor to get out. And by the way, I have a whole sermon on imagination about eight sermons from now because it's vitally important we ponder and learn how to imagine in a godly and biblical way. And there's a lot of Bible passages on the imagination, but that's for another night. My point here is this. He gives us a metaphor that we would even now begin to put our mind thinking, oh, if I'm going to become holy, I'm going to have to use my mind and I'm going to have to start training my mind to be disciplined. Let me give you a great quote from Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts in his book on logic that he wrote in the 1740s or so, Isaac Watts said, You have to teach your mind to say no to unwanted thoughts and to permit into your mind only those thoughts that you know should be there. Now, when I first read that, I thought, you can't do that. Have you ever thought that? Thoughts just come. I mean, what can you do? I mean, they just come and go. Oh no, we need to realize we have a great degree of power over our thoughts. And we choose to allow certain thoughts to stay in that room when we go to, hey, out, 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 everybody out. Like shooing the chickens out. How many of us let chickens just run through our sitting room? What can I do? They came in. And your wife says, I know they came in and now I want them out. I can't do anything. Yes, you can. Send those thoughts out and then close the door. Jesus, or Paul here, says, I don't want you to think about Jesus in that way. I want you to think about it in this way. You've got these three things, these sexual temptations. You've got these things, these partying temptations. You've got these things, these interpersonal temptations. They're going to overwhelm you. I want you to throw them down. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk over to Jesus, look through all the options, reject all those other options and then take Jesus and begin to get dressed with him. Start buttoning the clothes. How long does it take a three-year-old to get dressed or a four-year-old? It takes him so long. No, mommy, I can do the buttons. He comes out 10 minutes later and they're one button off the whole way. My kids, when they were young, we would let them dress. Sometimes they put their legs through the shirt it's through the armholes. Oh, your kids did that too. She's not even impressed. That won't even get a smile from her. She says, oh yeah, my kids. Oh, they did that. Yeah, she's talking about you. <laughs> Jesus wants us, or Paul wants us to imagine correctly the goal of sanctification. It is a metaphor, and that goal is to 
wear, or dress. So I'd like you to think about that as we go through this study. The goal is for you to actively choose every day. Let me just put on a little more of Christ. Let me put on a little more of Christ. Point number three. Change is at the core of sanctification. Put off and put on. Ephesians chapter four says that over and over three different times. Put off the old man and put on the new man who is created in Christ Jesus to good works. So put off and put on. Change is absolutely vital to the Christian. It's at the core of sanctification. If you're not willing to change, you will not find yourself holy. You're going to have to change. Now, my, my son was asking me very controversial questions last night. And I said, I think when you approach the doctrine of sanctification, what you should rather do is come to the rock-solid things that are not controversial. Now, if you just jump into controversy, things might be controversial. But if you start up front and say, let's get the things we can all agree on. Can we agree with this? If you want to be holy, you're going to have to change. If you want to be like Jesus, you're going to have to change some things. Ah, there, there we've said it. Now when we come later and the Holy Spirit starts to cut you on some things, you'll already be open to that idea because you already know you've got to be able to change some things. You can't even think of the things you have to change. Maybe right now, because if you knew you should change them, many of you have a good will and you'd say, well, I changed them already if I knew what they were. Well, that's the problem. We're going to have to uncover them in this study. And if we, don't, if, we, if we jump too quickly to the end, you're going to say, oh, I'm not, I'm not changing that. But if we just work slowly, sanctification is a process of change. It's a process whereby we have to be different from God because God cannot change. Malachi 3.6. And all through the Old Testament, he says, I cannot change. Except for the fact that he repents a half a dozen times. Come to the theology class. Animals and plants and earth cannot change. Do you ever ponder that? God does not change. Animals can't change. Dogs are always dog-like. What if a dog... What if a dog... I get home. My, my, my dog, Hopeful, is a little uh, um, cantankerous. And she's, he's not quite obedient as the previous dog had been before he, he went on. Just like in the story, we had Faithful and Hopeful and... Faithful died first, just like in the Pilgrim's Progress. And Hopeful's going to go with us to the end. If Hopeful dies early, oh, we're in trouble. Because in the book, Hopeful goes right to the end with Christian. Now, Hopeful's a little cantankerous. How surprised would you be if you came home with me tonight and you saw the dog sitting there? And then the dog had scratched out some letters on the ground and said, I've been thinking about the way I've been acting. I think I'd like to change. Dogs can't do that. Trees can't do that. They have to act according to their DNA. Which is why Jonathan Edwards said at 19 years old, one of his 70 resolutions, I'm resolved not to get angry at, what did he say? No, it was not to get angry at irrational. Not to get angry at irrational objects, whether dogs or animals 19 years old, he realized about himself. That's you too, isn't it? How many times do you get angry at the chair when you kick it? What did that chair do? 
Is there where you put it? Say, no, that was my wife who put it there. (laughs) Then why are you angry at the chair? Animals and plants and earth cannot change. The elect angels cannot change. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says there are elect angels. They can't change. They are bound in their path of holiness. Demons cannot change. There's no options for demons to repent. There is only one category in all of the universe that can change. And who is it? You and I. We can change. We're the ones who have the option left open for us. Sanctification is reserved for us. Let me give you an illustration now that I think are going to be with us throughout this entire study. Two illustrations, but one is probably better than the other. Sanctification is like getting a bucket of tar, you know, a 20 liter bucket, 25 liter, and you thought it was cleaned out. What, they, what happened was they had taken all the tar out, but when you take the tar out, there's still the residue all around the sides. What if someone said, just put the scones in that one? Would you put the scones in that one? Would you put the drinking water in that one? It's still got the pitch all around the sides. You see, that's what we are like. When we are saved, God dumps the pitch out. But what happens all around the sides of the bucket? It's still covered with tar, pitch, black, pitchy, sticky stuff. You don't want to put food in there. You don't want to put things. In fact, if, you're, if your six-year-old comes up and says, I'll get the bucket. No, 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 don't touch it. It's got, on the, it's got on the ledge, on the lip. Even on the outside, there's little drops of tar. Don't touch that bucket. Oh, I'll be careful, Dad. Uh, I don't want a six-year-old carefulness. You just don't touch it. That's the way you and I are. Is the bucket cleaned out? In one sense, it is, right? The, the 18 liters or so of the tar is out. But do you want to fill that bucket with food? Would you fill that bucket with sugar? Imagine you, you were one of the old four trekkers and you had to, you were the trek boers and you had to go from here up to Kenya. The old Um Dark and Tani Rina, they used to work at Toyota. They trekked, or their grandparents trekked from South Africa to Kenya on a cart. That's either the most amazing display of consistency or stupidity. I'm not sure. It's amazing. On a cart to Kenya. One of those carts is in the Boer Museum. The point is, if you're going up there, you're going to have to have a lot of buckets to hold your mugayo and your coffee. You're going to put coffee in a bucket that's still got two liters of pitch all around the sides? That's us. Are we cleaned out? Oh, yeah, we're 18 liters less than before. But are we cleaned out? Oh, man, I wouldn't put anything in that bucket. Are we the same as those guys? Those guys, they still have all their pitch and tar all through them. We need to change. And the point of this sermon, the point of this series is to cause us to see things the way they are and to slowly give us the tools for cleaning it out one step at a time. Or let me give you another illustration, a little more um, sophisticated. Two years ago or three years ago now, uh, a man was nominated to the high court in the United States. His name was Brett Kavanaugh. And when he was nominated, a woman came out who said she knew Brett Kavanaugh when he was 17. He's now in his 40s, 30 years later or so. And she came out and said, that boy touched me when we were 17 at a party. 
Now, there was no evidence that that happened. And there are even several people at the party 30 years later said that didn't happen. And one of this lady's friends, who's still friends with her, said he didn't do any of that. But here's what was very interesting. A radio host who's not a Christian said, wait, 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 forget this, forget this. And they were going to block him from being a judge on the high court because of this allegation from 30 years earlier. He didn't get blocked. He's on the high court right now. And we hope and pray that he will give us the right vote on a case that's coming up against abortion in June or July this coming year. Now, a a Jewish talk show host named Dennis Prager wrote an article and said, we're looking at this all wrong. Let's pretend that the allegations were true. And when the boy was 17, he touched a girl in a wrong way at a party. But everyone agrees that that's the only thing in his record. That's it. There's nothing else. There's no drunkenness. There's no drugs. There's nothing. There's no speeding tickets. There's nothing. So they said, if it's true that that man did that, let's pretend that it is then that man should not be put on the high court. He should be made king of the world. That's what the guy said. (laughs) Because he's done what we all wish we could do. He started doing bad things and he quit it. Isn't that great? So just pretend that the guy really did bad stuff, but we all agree now he's not doing bad stuff. So somehow he went from bad to good. Isn't that what we all want? Don't make him judge. Make him king of the world. I thought that's a pretty compelling argument. That's what we're studying with sanctification. Our goal is to change. Be honest with yourself. Think back to when you were 19. What do you do that even right now the thought is in your mind and you're saying, I am so glad no one knows that I did that. When you were 20, 21, 22, 23, when you were 16, When you were 15, you said something to someone that you are still trying to forget and you're so glad no one else knows about, but it still comes up. Sanctification is the process of changing. Well, now our time has expired and I need to to deal with the whole point of the sermon tonight which is that the goal of sanctification can be looked at three different ways. The goal is to put on Christ, but as a metaphor. So how can we think about that? I want to give you three ways to look at this and the, as the final point of the sermon this evening and as the map for what we're going to do with the rest of this study. Did you follow what I said at the beginning of the sermon? We're doing five lessons of introduction and then three more sections. Here they are. You can look at sanctification or putting on Christ. You can look at that three different ways. You can look, I mean, how would someone put on Jesus? You can't physically pick him up. You're going to have to imagine it. How would you do that? Well, here's one way to look at it. Do you think you would be putting on Jesus if you learned everything that Jesus knows? Would that be one way to put on Jesus, to put on the mind of Christ? As Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Or in Philippians 2, verse 5, we want to think like the mind of Christ. Would that be one way to become like Jesus if you knew all the things that he knows? Yes, it would. So in sanctification or in putting on Christ, here's one way to look at it. 
This is going to be the first major section of our study. I just want you to know the way Christ knows all the things he knows. Now, you can't know the way he knows and all the things he knows because he's God. But I want you to give it a try. With the power of the Holy Spirit, guided by the Bible, with other Christians to help you, I want you to know what Jesus knows. It's all through the scripture. Book of Hosea. For then we will know if we follow on to know the Lord. That is, we're going to know God's will if we press on to know the Lord. Press on, keep pressing on to know him. That's what we were supposed to study this morning in John chapter 17. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Really, you could summarize the entire Christian life with this. Know God. That's it. He he has shown you a man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to love justice, to walk humbly with your God. If you somehow just knew God perfectly, you knew everything the way he knows it, you would be perfect. Your bucket would be completely clean. You would be pure. And that's what the Bible says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. You're going to have to learn to know God. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Oh, if you could somehow get truth into your mind, you would be sanctified. That's the first category, truth or knowing or the head. Do you see I just give you three, one, three different terms for that. I'll do it repeatedly throughout this series so that you'll have it memorized and be able to use them. You can call it the truth or the head or knowing. We want you to know the truth. We want you to have a head that's a Christian head. That's just one way to look at it though. Well, remember what we're talking about. How can we put on Christ? Number one, know what he knows. Read the Bible the way he reads it. Master theology the way he would have you master it. Again, that's why I take so many hours to study for this course. I've taken many, many hours, and most of tomorrow and most of Tuesday is going to be given to more study for that course. And the reason is I want to know God. That's one way to be holy. It's one way to be sanctified. The second perspective or the second way to look at putting on Christ You can obey his laws. You can do what he did. You can obey. You can act like him. Or hands. Hands would be a metaphor for doing things. You don't do so many things with your head. The head is a metaphor for knowing or for truth. The hands would be a metaphor for obedience, doing things, activity. Have you ever noticed in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, He gives that picture that you've heard before. Is it a picture or a metaphor? Is it a parable? He says, anyone who hears my sayings and does them. I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a man who built his house on a rock. And the rains came and the floods rose and the rock and the house on the rock stood firm. That's that. You see, it's not just hearing, it's doing. But isn't that interesting? Jesus there does not say you've got to know the truth. He doesn't say you've got to love God. He just says, you know what? Just listen and obey. You just listen and obey. You'll be set. Your house won't fall if you just obey. 
That's one perspective. You'll make it to heaven. You will hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not my good and faithful thinker. My servant. What do servants do? They obey. They say, yes, sir. I'll wash the car. You will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, if you just hear what he says and obey him. That's obedience. Doing, action, the hands, or the second transcendental, goodness. What was the first one? Starts with a T. Truth. Truth and goodness. Number one, one way to look at the goal of sanctification is say, I've got to put on Christ. Well, what does it mean to put on Christ? If you could just know everything Christ knows, or if you could be mastered by the truth, if you could have a head that was full of Christ and his thoughts, you would be putting on Christ. Or if you could obey all of his laws, if you could do what he does, if you could act like he does, if you could have a lifestyle and a culture just like Jesus, or if you could have your hands or goodness. It's all the same metaphor. I keep repeating um, synonyms so that you'll get the, 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 the concept and the construction. The first perspective is knowledge or truth or having a godly head. The second perspective is action, obedience, doing, or using your hands, or having goodness. The third one is love, or beauty, or what's the final H? Head, hands, and the heart. Those three transcendentals, truth, goodness, beauty, Three ways to look at the same thing. And they picture the Holy Trinity. So that in every one of those, we have the Holy Trinity. The truth is God, the absolute standard, the Father, whose word is law. The goodness is the Son. He's the word made flesh who obeys the law on earth. He obeyed the law and his active and passive obedience are imputed to my account. That's goodness. You want to know what goodness is? Look to Jesus. You've got goodness mastered. You want to know what truth is? Get into the mind of the Father. Do you want to know what beauty is? Jonathan Edwards says, come to the class, the Holy Spirit is beauty such that there is no beauty outside of Christ. And the beauty of the Son is a reflection of the Spirit. Beauty is the Spirit, but actually they're all related so that you cannot have the beauty of the Spirit without the truth of the Father or the goodness of the Son. If you would really have goodness, you've got to have the truth of the Father. If you would really have goodness, you've got to be beautiful like the Spirit. You've got to have love and beauty and the heart. It must be connected to the head and the hands and all three of these work together. Or in other words, if you've got one, you've got them all. If you really want to put on Christ, here you are and you say, wow, my bucket is filthy. I've got a lot of bad things that I'm ashamed of. I want to be a Christian. I want to live. He's coming back. When he comes, I want him to say, well done. I want him to be pleased with me. What could I do? Answer, take off your clothes. Take off the works of the flesh, the works of darkness. Throw those on the ground and go to your wardrobe. Flip through and turn past all those foolish options. And then what option are you going to pull out? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Three ways to look at it so you'll never forget. It means knowing the truth. It means obeying what is good. It means loving what is beautiful. And if you could 
Just master any one of those, and there's a lot of personalities out here. Some of you will be captivated with the idea of loving. Great. You go and you master biblical love, balanced with truth and balanced with goodness, you will be a godly man. Some of you are great doers. If you're an active man, if you're a guy, I can't sit still. When I'm sitting down, I'm even bumping my leg all the time. They're always moving. i got so much energy. Maybe you need, maybe the goodness will be the real thing that will help you. Of course, that goodness has to be balanced with biblical love and godly truth. Maybe you say, you know, I'm not very energetic, but I could just sit quietly all day without saying a word, reading books. Maybe what will be so helpful for you is to master the truth that God has revealed about himself and balanced, of course, with goodness and beauty. But there are different ways to look at putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our goal in this study is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll do it by studying eight to 10 sermons on knowing the truth. Then a number of sermons on obeying good things, doing good things. And then a number of sermons on loving the beautiful things. May God help us to aim for the right goal. Oh, Father, thou who art the source of all truth and whose mind reflects for us the rays of every perfect thought. Grant to us your own mind on these matters that we might grow up into the full stature of a mature man. Oh, Jesus Christ, we would have the fruit of the spirit of goodness. We would be as good as you are and we are so bad. I pray that we would act with our hands in a good way. Holy Spirit, how we love you. And we wish we loved you and the Son and the Father more. So come and help us in this time of sanctification. That we would look wisely at putting on the Lord Jesus. That we would devote ourselves to this mammoth task. Help us. Walk with us. Our energy will fall short. Our minds will get tired. We'll get easily distracted. So please continually put us back on the course. Help us if we even give 1% of effort. Please help us and make that 1% go 30%, 40, 50, 80, 90. Oh, Lord Jesus, when we reach out, I pray that you would grab our weak hand and make us stronger than we are. For we would be pure, but we are so weak and so prone to foolish patterns. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.